according to selfdirecthelp.com, the top 10 fears that people have in order are these, and they base it upon a sophisticated internet search protocol, but these are their top 10. First, fear of flying. And I've always thought that fear of flying is kind of a silly fear. It should be fear of crashing. That is, that is the <laughs> deal. But fear of flying seems to be number one. Fear of public speaking is number two. Now, I know about that one. In, in the 1980s, the University of North Carolina ran an extensive study on the major fears that people have. And fear of, fear of public speaking was number two in that list also. In their list, death was number one. And it's on this list, but I think that's probably the real number one. But nevertheless, fear of flying, fear of public speaking... Fear of heights, fear of the dark. Number five is fear of intimacy. Number six they have is fear of death. I think that should be probably number one, knowing people, but they have it as number six. Number seven, fear of failure. Number eight, fear of rejection. Number nine, fear of spiders. I think that one ought to be snakes. (laughs) But fear of spiders made the top ten. And number ten, fear of commitment. My list would be a little different. I don't like heights, but I love the mountains. I love the view. Flying doesn't bother me at all. I wouldn't mind speaking to 50,000, but I sure don't want to get stuck on an elevator. That's happened to me before. I was in Ukraine several years ago, my friend Jim Dumas. It was dark. Most elevators in Ukraine are undersized, about the size of a closet, maybe a coat closet. The lights never work in the elevators. So it's pitch dark when you get in there. I would have just as soon walked down the stairs. We get in the elevator. Jim and I are already standing next to each other, side by side. There's not a lot of extra room, and a man gets on with a German shepherd in the elevator. No joke. We go down to the bottom floor, and the door won't open. My, my pulse is racing. I mean, this is, that would be the number one thing for me. I'm not afraid of dying so much, but I'm afraid of getting stuck on an elevator, especially a coat-sized elevator with two men and a dog in it with me. <laughs> Jim says, not to worry. We went up to the, he said, I think it's just probably out of balance. We went up to the next floor. It opens up. He says, okay, let's try it again. I'm starting to get out. He said, the, the door closes. I'll walk. But we go down to the bottom. It won't, it won't open. Again. I thought, this is insanity. Jim's just as claustrophobic as I am. But he said, oh, let's push the button. We'll try it up again. He opens it up again. I darted off the <laughs> elevator. And I walked down the stairs. And now, I'm not joking, every time I get on an elevator, I remember that, and my heart starts racing, I hope it's going to open up. All of us can make our lists of the things that we fear, and all of our lists would be different. I'm sure there'd be some similarities. But there's one thing that probably would not make anybody's top 20, much less top 10, and this one thing ought to be on everybody's top 10 list of things that we fear most. That might seem like an odd thing to say in view of a passage like Isaiah chapter 41.10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Yes, I will strengthen thee. Yes, I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. So what are we doing this morning talking about something that we ought to be afraid about in view of a passage like that? Because that passage and many others encourage us not to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of anything. This passage even implies that fear is a sin. Because it's implying a lack of trust in God. So what could we possibly mean today when we say that there's something that we ought to fear? Our passage today issues a stern warning against causing trouble in a local church. It's a warning 
not against bringing to light something that needs to be brought to light or making a correction with something that needs to be corrected or something that needs to be changed being changed. That's not what we're talking about today. Later in this very epistle, the Apostle Paul will rebuke this same Corinthian congregation for not dealing with a particular situation that they had in their church. Now, some changes need to be made. Sometimes things need to be corrected. But that's not the subject of the warning today. This warning is against destructive actions by believers within the context of the local church. And specifically, with respect to what Paul has been speaking about so far in this first epistle to the Corinthians, the warning is against purposefully doing something or anything that would disrupt the unity within a church. We should be scared to death to engage in such destructive behavior. The problem is that this particular fear is not even on most people's radar. Yes, they fear heights or public speaking or failure or spiders or death. Sure, we fear those things, but fear splitting a church? you got to be kidding me. Fear something that would create disunity within the church? In the top ten, you got to be kidding me. Actually, I'm not. This is real. This is serious. And to ignore it might just be the biggest mistake you'll ever make as a Christian, as someone who's already trusted Christ. It might just be that big. And I am not speaking hyperbolically. I trust that now I have your attention. Certainly, we should fear doing anything that offends the holiness of God. In view of the high price that was paid for our salvation, in view of the price that God had to pay through His Son to solve the sin problem, it's ironically how casually most of us take sin. The fact that we can confess sin and be restored to fellowship should never be mistaken as a license to sin or misunderstood to mean that sin is no longer an offense to the holiness of God after we're Christians. Certainly it is. The sin problem has been solved. The eternal penalty of sin has been dealt with. But sin still offends the holiness of God. When we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Why shouldn't it grieve us? Does anybody see the disconnect between the Spirit's grief at our sin and our apathy toward that same sin? Anybody see a disconnect there? But within the broader context of fearing to offend the holiness of God, there's a more specific fear that we should have based upon the passage that we study today, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. We should fear doing anything that unjustly, unfairly, or unrighteously harms the unity within a local church. Let me pause and make this as clear as I possibly can in case you're just now tuning in. There are always going to be, within a local church, legitimate criticisms, legitimate concerns, and legitimate questions. There will always be those things. And when those things occur, it's sinful not to address them. 
It's painful to address them sometimes, but it's sinful not to address them if they're legitimate concerns. Typically, the concern would first be addressed to a member of the leadership of the church and not through emails that go church-wide or to conversations that occur over coffee. Typically, they should be handled in an appropriate way, but they should be handled. If there is a concern, the believer should speak to someone who's in a position to have more information on the subject than they do. The problem may be you just don't have the facts. Maybe you just have a little bit of the, a piece of the puzzle. That must be how God feels about all of us when we're critical of something. He's got 100% of the facts. At best, we have 5 or 10% of the facts most of the time, and we go off making incredible pronouncements. God must feel that way all the time. But sometimes people have more facts than you do on a subject, and it wouldn't hurt to ask. And if they tell you, listen, that's being handled, I'd appreciate it. If we just let it go, then let it go. And if you don't trust the leadership, get new leadership. But don't take matters into your own hands. You're going to see that that is going to be bad for you if it happens. This is extremely serious. Again, there was a situation in Corinth that needed to be addressed, but it wasn't. Everyone was looking the other way at a particular man in the congregation who was sleeping with his stepmother. Now, I'd say that's a situation that needs addressing in a church. But this Corinthian church was ignoring that. So he let it go. And haven't we seen this week the danger of just letting things go because they're our friends? Look at the damage that has occurred up in Pennsylvania from that attitude. So I'm never saying, that we ought not to address legitimate concerns in the church. We're going to have a whole, almost a whole chapter on that later coming up. But today, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and see about this specific time when raising concerns in an inappropriate way, when complaining, when judging, when trying to drive a knife through the middle of a congregation to split it in two or more parts is going to bring the most severe discipline you can possibly imagine. And it might not look like it on the surface. Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Previous to this point in the epistle, the Apostle Paul has used two, me two metaphors. First, an agricultural metaphor and then an architectural metaphor. He's spoken of planting and watering when it came to himself and Apollos. He also spoke about building upon a solid foundation with solid, legitimate building materials. So he switched from agricultural to architectural, and now he is going to switch to a third metaphor, but he's speaking about the same thing. When we do Bible study, it is almost always a mistake to take one or two verses out of the middle of a chapter and ignore the context of the rest of the chapter and think we figured it out. We need to remember that this is in the middle of the context where Paul is speaking about unity within the church. So he's going to move to a third metaphor, speaking about that same thing, and depicts the church as God's temple. First we were a field, the agricultural metaphor, then we're a building. Now he speaks of us as a temple. The way he phrases this first question, do you not know, depicts that they are the temple of God. Indirectly, they are indeed the temple of God, or a temple of God. Here's where there is a detail in the Greek text that doesn't show up in the English text 
And that detail goes a long way toward helping us to understand what's going on here. I don't typically bring up to you details in the Greek text unless it matters, unless there's something in the English text whereby we can't draw out the meaning of the text unless we know that detail. And there is one detail here that is important. There's been a great deal of misapplication about this passage because of a failure to recognize that the you here, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That one little word, you, is not in the singular. It's in the plural. And that makes all the difference for understanding what Paul is doing here. You'd have no way of knowing that if you just looked at the English translation because it's the same. The singular and the plural are the same in English, but they're not in Greek. This is one place where we do have to at least bring out that detail so that we can understand the passage better. And you can see that this passage is, is actually talking about disrupting unity within a church, not smoking or drinking or riding a motorcycle without a helmet on or whatever it is that we, that we ascribe to this passage about destructive behavior, drinking too many Dr. Peppers, or eating too many Milky Ways. I always think it's funny how people who condemn people who smoke, I mean, they are just condemning them while they're eating a Twinkie and drinking a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> now, come on. If we're going to do this, let's apply it equally. But this is not what this passage is talking about. It's not. Now, I'm not advocating smoking. For all of you that have been trying to get your husband to quit smoking, don't sin in this tape and say it's okay. All of that's, all that's a, a true thing. We need to take care of this temple. That's going to come up in chapter 6. But here, this is a collective you. It's collective. Do, and I'll, put, I'll do it the southern way, do you all, do you all, do you all not know that you all are a temple singular? This doesn't say that we are all temples the you is plural, the temple is singular. This means that we are all, everybody that's gathered here today, is a singular temple. I hope you see the significance of bringing that plural in here. This is not talking about us as individuals. That's going to come up later. But here it's talking about us as, as, as people who have gathered together, and we are all now one temple. Do you all not know that you all are a temple, singular, of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all? That's something that happens to us at the moment we're saved. The Holy Spirit dwells each in each of us. When we gather together, something very special happens. Paul is speaking to a group of Christians gathering in the name of Christ, not of individuals here. It's a principle in biblical study. If you get the wrong interpretation, you're going to have faulty application. So many people want to rush to application, that they search the Scriptures for something that they think will make their case. Don't do that. If you find a passage that you want to make a case with, at least go back to the beginning of the chapter. Preferably go back to the beginning of the letter and read it all the way through. Make sure it's talking about what you think it's talking about. Here Paul's speaking to a group of Christians, not to individuals. It's the group that is gathered, that is, in this case, the temple of God, for that location at that time. Again, in chapter 6, Paul's going to use this same imagery, and he's going to talk about individuals. But here he's talking about the collective gathering, the community of believers gathered in a local church. That word community is a word we probably haven't done enough to discover. 
We're so concerned, and rightly so, with our individual salvation, with our individual walk before the Lord, the way that we individually function with regard to our spiritual gifts. We haven't spent enough time, I don't think, on community. This is a community passage today. The community of believers assembled in a local church. Whenever the church gathers, wherever the church gathers, it becomes a temple of God. This shouldn't be confused with the the temple in Jerusalem or the temple that will occur in the millennium. That is the temple with a capital T. We as a local church become a temple with a small t. How startling it must have been for Paul to identify this primitive gathering of believers who are in many ways very carnal in a home in Corinth as a temple of God. Very few of these believers in Corinth probably had ever seen the temple in Jerusalem in all of its splendor. And it was still up by the time that Paul wrote this. It will be destroyed shortly after he writes 1 Corinthians. But it's still there. But few people probably had ever seen that. But it didn't mean that they weren't acquainted with magnificent temples. There were magnificent temples all over Greece. The Parthenon up in Athens where they worshipped Athena was an incredible temple. They all were familiar with that. So they knew what a temple it was. And they also had to be shocked when Paul says, listen, you're a temple. And they're thinking, wait a minute, we're a temple. We're meeting in Bob's house. There's not enough places for everybody to sit. Some of us are standing in the doorway trying to listen to the word be taught. This is a temple? Paul says, yes, it's a temple. You take it seriously. Wherever, whenever you meet, that local body becomes a temple. Some of the things that are true of the local body also true of the church body in general I think that's more the subject of Paul's teaching in Ephesians. Here he's talking about local church more than church universal. But as we meet here today, we are a temple of God. Now here's the warning that I've been referring to. Do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The answer to that should be yes. We all know that. Granted, sir. Well, here's the warning in verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The Spirit of God is the key to spiritual unity. We all have the same Spirit. You do, I do, the person sitting behind you and in front of you. We all are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. It's not a different Holy Spirit for each of us. We may be a different person. But it's the same spirit. It's the same Lord that we worshipped a few moments ago in the communion service. He died for you and he died for me. Same God. Same Jesus on the cross. And he loves me every bit as much as he loves you. And he loves you every bit as much as he loves me. And that goes for everybody in this room. I think sometimes we have it wrong. We get so individualistic with our idea of Christianity that we kind of think it's all about me. It's about me and my Savior. There is a level upon which that's true. But there's also a level upon which it's not just about you and your Savior. It's about you and everybody else that gathers with you. Whenever, wherever that happens. This is a transparent call for unity in the middle of a section of a letter that is talking about unity in the local church. The biggest danger to a local church does not come from without. It doesn't come from the government. It doesn't come from Islamic terrorists or any kind of terrorist. 
the biggest danger to a local church comes from within. If anyone destroys God's temple, that is the local church, whenever or wherever it's meeting, it doesn't have to be meeting in a particular building that's bought and paid for, four stories high, got plate glass, whenever and wherever, that's a temple of God. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. The verb here is a tongue twister, phthyro. It can also mean ruin. You ruin God's church, and God will ruin you. You see why I said this is serious? It ought to be on everybody's top ten list. This is not a light thing. You ruin God's church, and God will ruin you. That's pretty strong. That should cause us to pause and to think before we open our mouths or before we write emails to our friends. One more time, there are legitimate concerns. I'm not talking about those, and, but I hope you know what I mean. What you need to do is stop and ask yourself before you write that email, is this something that is legitimate enough to split a church over? And if it is, write the email. If it's not, you better hold on and go through proper channels. Speak to someone that may have more facts than you do or that's in a position to do something about it. You ruin the church, God will ruin you. Gordon Fee, the New Testament scholar, wrote of this passage, one can scarcely circumvent the awful nature of this warning. Those who are responsible for dismantling the church may expect judgment in kind. It doesn't say what the judgment's going to be here, but God is an incredible God of fair justice. And to the degree that you dish it out, it's going to come right back to you. Be careful. This discipline will occur in time, and also there's going to be an overflow contextually into the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema. Given the close proximity to the reference of the judgment seat. We studied it last week, the judgment seat of Christ in verses 13 through 15. We can be sure that part of this warning refers to loss of eternal reward when we stand before our Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not just temporal. Now, this is not a loss of salvation. That's not what this word destruction means here. But it is a loss of reward. It is personal ruin. Who needs that? I don't, and I know you don't. There'll be no well done for the person who purposefully disrupts the unity within a local church in a destructive way. There'll be no well done. So it's time and eternity. You see why I began by saying this ought to be on everybody's top ten list. None of us can afford this. The church is a place where we apply the word of God in love. That's what Paul said the finality, the goal, the outcome of all of his teachings should be love. Love for God and love for one another. A church ought to be a place of incredible self-sacrifice, selflessness, not selfishness. You should be able to count on the people in your church more than anybody in life. To put it in a practical way, you should be able to call somebody in your church at 2 o'clock in the morning and say, Hey, something terrible has happened. Can you come over? And there ought to be not, not a second thought about it. It doesn't just need to be the pastor. It ought to be anybody in that local church. You should be able to call up and say, hey, listen, I've got a flat tire. I'm on the Gulf Freeway. That happened several years ago. I was in Kazakhstan, August of 2000. I didn't tell my wife at the time, but one of our tires needed changing. She said, that's a handy bit of information I would like to have had. She had a blowout on the Gulf Freeway coming to church. 
two men in our church went out without question in the middle of August summertime, got their suits all messed up and went and changed that tire for her and didn't think another thing of it. They got upset the last time I mentioned their name, so I won't do it today. That's love. That's what ought to happen, not disunity. Not trying to figure out a way where I can get a leg up on somebody else or I can split this thing up and start my own deal. Well, that's what you want to do, have at it. It's the Lord's business. But be careful. Unity is so important. It's not just a liberal theological word. Unity. No, it's, a, it's an extremely conservative theological word. It's an important theological word. We're on the same team here. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving with our families. We're going to celebrate it next Sunday night with the church family. Then in a, about 10 days from now or so, we're going to celebrate it with our families. Now that I'm a grandfather and got kids and everybody's coming to the, they become, most of them are coming to my house this year, same thing's going to happen to a lot of you. How disappointed would you be if during the Thanksgiving dinner, what happens so often actually happens this year, and that is the two of your kids start arguing about something, something maybe has been brewing up for a long time, and they think that it's okay because it's just between them. You know what? It's not just between them. It overflows to everybody else that's eating. It ruins the whole meal. It's an insult to the one that's hosting the meal. It's an insult to the one that cooked the meal because there's a lack of unity there within that nuclear unit of the family. Nobody likes that. We've all experienced it at one time or another. You know how uncomfortable that is. That's why we look at the guest list to see sometimes before we decide if we're going to accept an invitation. Oh, they're going to be there. You know what? I've got to go to Alabama this year. <laughs> if we feel like that from a human perspective about our family dinners, how do you think God feels from a heavenly perspective about a church that he bought with the death of his son? With the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish. I'm not trying to pull a Rodney King on you today, but God wants us to get along. And those who purposefully try to interrupt that unity are going to pay a steep price. Don't do that. I love you all. I hate to see that happen to anybody. It's interesting here. This doesn't say the church leadership needs to discipline anybody. This says God's going to do it personally. All I can say is, wow. A church embroiled in disunity and conflict is going to be an ineffective church. And the mission of the church is far too important for that. Eternal destinies are at stake. This isn't a football game or a baseball game where a loss might upset you. This is someone's eternal destiny. This is not a joke. Disunity can ruin the effective outreach of a church. It's serious business and it carries with it serious consequences. Do you not know do you all not know that you all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. It's set apart for a particular purpose. And that is what you are. With all due respect to selfhelpdirective.com, they can concern themselves with the fear of flying and the fear of speaking before crowds if they like to. But in my view, the fear that should be near the top of the list is a fear of behavior in a local church that disrupts the unity of that church. 